Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. CR855 on the AM dial and podcast on your WWs. Also available at our website. But before I tell you that, I'll tell you who we are if you haven't heard of us before. We're dogs. We are the dogs. Yes, there's more than one of us. And we are the defenders of government schools. Yep, in Australia in 2019, we exist because we need to exist because a very large number of people have vested interests such that they want to destroy the government school system in Australia. Um, that's their function. That is what they want to do. Some of them want to make money out of education. They want to see it completely privatised so they can take all the profit shares they like. Some of them, um, and it's strange in, in Australia, there's a history of religious organisations refusing to allow their children to enter government schools because they are full of the godless and the heathen, and then they learn um, irreligious maths and irreligious English and irreligious science, whereas, in fact, they'd rather the children of their denominations learn Catholic maths or Methodist English or, I don't know, Scientology science. And so we in Australia uh, think that's a good idea, apparently. Uh, We think that Scientology's people should send their Scientology children to Scientology schools to learn the Scientology math um, and science and English and whatever. Um, and so we fund them. We fund them to do so. We say, here's some money. You go and educate your kids in whatever way you seem fit. Oh, by the way, there's some laws over here, but um, we'll check every 50 years or so. So will you just watch yourselves and, and, and be good? Yeah. Anyway, that's why we're here. We are, that's why we are here to defend the government school system. Because we think that Australia should have a gold standard education system. Um, it doesn't. And worse than that, it's getting, it's getting worse over the years. Uh, we'll be talking about that actually, talking about the latest PISA results that just come out, where Australia is now no longer anywhere near the top. We're right smack bang on the median when it comes to mathematics. Um, the number, the, the list of countries that are better than us at educating kids is now growing longer and longer and longer and more and more disturbing. The idea that Australia should have a special place in the world because, well, you know, we're smarter than everyone else and we've got lots of resources and we're the lucky country um, is now no longer in any sense um, true. And it's a lie when it comes to the generation that we're currently educating at the moment. Um, we are now in a country which over a single generation, since, since 2000 or so, where we have become collectively um, more stupid, collectively less flexible in our thinking. We have as a country over that time, over a generation, become worse at thinking about stuff and making decisions. And so we here are here to defend the government school system because the only way you're going to turn that around is with a government school system, a system that allows all kids to turn up work together, and hopefully be properly resourced. That's, that's where we come in, because we need to defend that right to have appropriate resources. Um, just to come and work together. Um, no, one, no one asks you at a, at a government school what your religion is, what your parents' surnames um, mean in whatever culture, and there's no discrimination based upon that. They don't ask you what your sexuality is, or indeed the sexuality of your parents, or your aunts, or your uncles. There's no tests of any, any nature at a government school system. If you live in the area, um, then off you go. There are selective schools for you know, those kids who are all really good at engineering. They tend to get together and have a lovely time. 
And so there are sort of tests in terms of intellectual ability. But that's it. Because I mean, schooling is about testing people to the limits, I suppose. And this is a long introduction, I know. But um, what I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm trying to shield you from the sheer power, the sheer power of Jean's press release. Now, Jean's not here today. Um, she's off researching in Tasmania. So if you're out there listening, Jean, in the wilds of the west of Tasmania, having a lovely time, um, good luck to you. But we do have the second half of your press release, which you did last week, which I'm handing over in all its power and glory to Dale. Thanks, Rob. I'm continuing on with an article here written by Thomas Oren called The Real Cost of Private Education. Now, we've already covered, uh, the article already covered last week the fact that private schools that public school students are the inadvertent victims of private schools and we've gone through the inefficiency of private schools, the costs of excess capacity and redundancy and resource duplication and the social degradation and disadvantage and under the utilisation of resources that takes place in private schools. But now we continue onward. Part two is the external cost of demoralization. Between the fees they charge and the general and the generous public funding they receive, wealthy private schools can provide superior facilities and resources to those available in most public schools, including swimming pools, theatres, country retreats and dedicated sports grounds. This allows wealthy private schools to claim superior resources. However, even the poorest private school can claim exclusivity because the fees they charge exclude those who cannot afford them. Claims of superiority and exclusivity are essential for the marketing of private schools. If not, nobody in their right mind would pay to send their child to one. The mere perception of superiority can create a psychological effect known as priming, an advantage or disadvantage created by giving someone the impression, either implicitly or explicitly, intentionally or inadvertently, that they are favoured or disfavoured. Telling a student that they are receiving a superior education will prime them to perform better. However, if, a, if private school students gain the impression that they are advantaged, privileged or even superior to their public school counterparts, it creates an unintended side effect. Public school students are given the antithetical impression. They gain the impression that they are inferior, which may prime them to underperform. This is a very real cost to society. In other words, the very existence of private schools may degrade the self-esteem and the progress of public school students, which must also have a demoralising effect on their teachers. The effect of this on education generally, and ultimately the nation's productivity, cannot be underestimated. The cost, the external cost of poor mental health. Another cost of underfunding public schools is the consequence of not providing adequate support for students with physical, social, behavioural, emotional or mental problems. Public schools are expected to do much of the heavy lifting of juvenile social work and mental health support in society, but their budgets are barely adequate to educate. While there is some funding available to deal with these issues and some wonderful work is being done, it is nowhere near enough to deal with them adequately. This is a lost opportunity. According to Nobel Prize winning economist James Heckman, the best time and the most cost effective way to deal with physical, social, behavioural, emotional and mental problems is as early as possible. Every adult who suffers from mental illness was once a student in a classroom who probably caused concerns for their teacher. Underfunding mental support in public schools means that many such concerns go unheeded, a cost that society will have to pay in the future as more children with treatable problems become adults with major unresolved issues. 
the loss of political will to support public education. There is another largely unrecognised external cost of the subsidisation of private schools, and that is the loss of political will to make public schools the best schools possible. For one thing, many politicians are products of the private system, and if not, most send their children or grandchildren to private schools. The result is a network within our parliaments that has a vested interest in subsidising private education. I often wonder how much better off public schools would be if public schools were compulsory for all parliamentarians. On the other side of the debate, the parents of public school students are far less likely and able to lobby on behalf of public education. Not only do they lack the skills and resources and time to do so, but many simply assume that their politicians are looking after their interests rather than their own. The default solution for many citizens and politicians who are not satisfied with public education is not to improve the public system, but to escape it. Subsidisation allows some parents, including many politicians, to do just this, and these people no longer have a vested interest in improving the public system. While this may make some parents happy, we must also consider the effect it has on the parents of the children who remain in public schools. The public system is left facing a catch-22. A higher proportion of disadvantaged students who need a higher proportion of funding and support, but with proportionally less funding to support them. This leaves our public schools having to carry out more work with less money and little political will to improve the situation, which leaves students, parents and teachers feeling vulnerable and powerless. The external cost of lost talent and opportunity. If private education is indeed superior to public education, it means that there is a massive pool of talent that is waiting to be tapped. This pool is a valuable resource that is being underutilised, akin to leaving a rich seam of gold in the ground. The simplest way to use this resource is to tap into it to ensure that all students get the best education possible. This means diverting more funds to in the, into public schools where the law of diminishing marginal returns assures us that they will do the most good. The potential benefit of tapping into this resource is enormous. A society can only benefit from making the best education possible available to all citizens. The cost of allocative inefficiency and the law of diminishing marginal utility. Whenever a dollar of public money could achieve more benefit in one school than another, it should be used there. The economic principle of diminishing marginal returns states that allocating more resources to an activity will eventually result in diminishing benefits. In education, this means that allocating funds to students who already have the greatest advantage will create less benefit than allocating them to students who are disadvantaged. But while students from low socioeconomic backgrounds will benefit more from a dollar of funding than those from wealthy backgrounds, our current system of funding does just the opposite. By allocating billions of dollars in subsidies per year to students who are already advantaged, the students who really need the funds are left even more disadvantaged. Simply put, Every public dollar spent in a moderately wealthy private school is doing less good than it could in a public school, and society has to bear the cost of this lost potential. The fees required to enrol in private schools denies access to them by the majority of Australian students, and as a result, they cannot access the highest level of per capita in the country and therefore cannot receive the best education possible. Conclusion. So when Ando implied that the only way to get the best education possible was a private school, I'm sure he didn't mean to imply that some students did not deserve the best education possible. But in effect, that's exactly what happens. If listeners remember, the article itself began when... 
Thomas Oren overheard Arndo saying in just a throwaway line that the kids were going to a private school to get the best education possible. And it was just a throwaway line, but that line inspired Thomas Oren to write this article. So just to conclude, if private schools are to continue to be subsidised, it must be in a way that does not disadvantage public school students. And that is for public schools to receive the same amount of funding per capita as moderately wealthy private schools, plus a 10% loading to cater for the extra disadvantaged students they have to deal with. And that article will be available on the DOGS website at www.adogs.info. Thank you very much, Dale. Yes, it wasn't Jean's voice, but they were the thoughts from her press release. Um, you're listening to the DOGS program. We are the defenders of government schools. We'll be back with a little more after this. Summertime. Summertime brings wine. Pass me my Prosecco. This year's delicious Radical Radio wines are generously sponsored by Breast's Winery in the Harcourt Valley. Specially priced at only $20 a bottle and even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. You can order via phone or online and collect it from 3CR during business hours up until noon on Tuesday the 24th of December. Perfect as a gift? Or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR. Call the station during business hours on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Breast Wines is a 3CR supporter.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program, the Defenders of Government Schools. Yeah, um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about footy, because um, I did last week, and if you were listening last week, I was talking about an interesting article by Jake Nile, who says the way footy is played and the people who play it has been shifting in the last 20 years. Oh, yeah, like so many other things in terms of Australian culture. Um, rich kids get to play football. Rich kids from really rich schools get to play football. In fact, you're four times more likely to get drafted by an AFL team if you're in the draft. Um, if you're from one of 11 schools across the country. And when I say 11 schools, these aren't, these aren't schools on um, Aboriginal missions with lots and lots of talented kids. These are schools uh, that are Scots College. These are schools that are Trinity. These are schools that are um, the various private schools around not just Melbourne, but, of course, all those bits of Australia that do play AFL. And Jake Noel was just saying, just in a really simple way, um, he's done the figures and... Um, the whole egalitarian nature of the Australian rules football process when it comes to recruiting younger young footballers um, is a myth. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, and to continue on from what he, was, what he was mentioning, what I was mentioning, that he was mentioning last week, um, he puts it down, he's outlined the problem. The problem is there's too many rich kids. Um, if you're going to call yourself egalitarian, if you're not going to call yourself egalitarian, go for your life. If, if you're going to call yourself the, the game of the people, it doesn't you know everyone has a chance? Then um, no, that's no longer true. Probably was at some point, um, but not anymore. He puts this down to the fact that there's an arms race. Now, in the arms race, there's a couple of weapons you use. One of which is a scholarship. What you do is you find a really good football player and you say, hey, would you like to come to our really rich school? We'll give you a scholarship. It won't cost you any money. And Jack Nile says it's a one-word response when you ask recruiters, AFL officials, player agents and the school's, school's insiders to explain the private school takeover of the AFL. Around the onset of the millennium, back in, you know, back when it was the 20th century, these schools stepped up their recruiting for purposes of winning games and forging football reputations. Halebury and Caulfield Grammar were among the most active schools in offering what then Melbourne Grammar headmaster Paul Sheehan called inducements for talented footballers. Halebury, he says, got better recruiters than St Kilda does. That is the football team. And that was said by one club scout. Um, and that was almost a decade ago. The arms race then ensued. Scotch pioneered scholarships for Indigenous kids from the Northern Territory, a system that Ogilvy called the Cyril Rioli Scholarship, after the Hawthorne virtuoso who came to Scots from TV Islands. Didn't know that. Melbourne Grammar followed suit. Scholarships proliferated, to the point where recruiters now divided their weekends between the AFL's elite under-18 NAB League and... Uh, Rich Kids Football, which is the APS, AGS footy sort of rounds, and all that sort of stuff. Sheehan can remember the moment when school recruiting policy flipped at Melbourne Grammar. It was in 2001, and then headmaster of the South Arrow School watched the dark blue grammar humiliated at the MCG in the season's biggest game. The anniversary commemorating the first game of Australian rules against the arch-foe Scotch. We couldn't see anything particularly educational in getting flogged, said Sheehan, 73, a tall, angular ex-cricketer. Grammar's Marn Group Club was formed by old boys and parents to bolster footy, and at Sheehan's behest the likes of Xavier Ellis, a subsequent Hawthorne player, arrived at the school. Sheehan's view was that the scholarship holders should uphold certain standards, not simply kick and mark proficiently. He wanted beacons on the hill, Positive role models, not just good footballers. Like Scotch, Melbourne Grammar awarded scholarships to Indigenous kids, such as Melbourne defender Stephen May. Geelong Grammar has lately been on the splurge and will likely have two of the top ten in Wednesday's draft, as they did in 2017. As a predominant co-ed boarding school with a modest male, uh, male numbers, Geelong Grammar's specialty is to attract country kids from years 10 and 11. She sees nothing wrong with offering scholarships, which were a vexed topic of meetings of the, of the, of the headmasters um, in his day. There was enormous reluctance to admit to scholarships, said Sheehan. If you're going to do it, do it and be open about it. 
APS sources says that Halebury, having established a serious programme, have cut back on sports-only scholarships under Principal Derek Scott. It's also commonplace for kids at the schools to be given general excellence scholarships that take academic performance into account. Geelong College, for instance, doesn't dole out sports scholarships. They just do the general excellence ones. Halebury's success has been aided for the past three years by ex-Essendon champion Matthew Lloyd, who has been either assistant or co-coach for the premierships shared with Caulfield Grammar and, and, and Kerry this year in those seasons. Hitherto, smaller Brighton Grammar won three APS titles in a row when coached by Robert Shaw, a teacher at the school who'd been senior coach with Fitzroy in Adelaide. Look, says, says this author, says Pierre, there's two tiers. A cottage industry has mushroomed within private schools for ex-AFL club coaches, players and even fitness staff. Cameron Ling, the ex-Geelong Premiership captain, captain, had a role at Geelong Grammar. Ex-Melbourne captain Brad Green um, is director of football at Melbourne Grammar. Barry Rowlings, distinguished ex-Hawthorne and Richmond player, has been a fixture at Caulfield Grammar. The standards of training and games has gone through the roof. Um, Shaw says of the APS footy today. More than one AFL club recruiter has compared the APS in particular to American college football and basketball. While a tiny fraction of the size of these billion dollar enterprises, private school football has college football-like traits. Aggressive recruiting, extensive coaching, and not least the pride engendered through winning games, premiership, or when their students are then subsequently drafted into the AFL draft. Having accomplished AFL footballs among the alumni is a marketing tool for the schools, which also brandish fancy facilities. Lloyd said the parents believe they're getting elite coaches and academics. Education academic Dr Emma Rowe, a senior lecturer at Deakin University, said there was a huge branding advantage for the private schools in the number of players drafted compared with state schools. It's part of a broader story of educational Segregation, said Rowe. Government school football, thus, following Newton's third law, every action has an equal and opposite reaction, um, withered in proportion to private schools for the expansion. State school competitions are minimal. There's very few. Unless you're a kid at a school with a well-resourced footy program, such as Maribyrnong College or Box Hill Secondary College, the state school lad is reliant upon his local community club. If you make it from a state school, you'll make it from a club, said Jean. There are schools that will put a lie to that, but in general it's true. On occasion, there have been tensions between private schools and the AFL, which wants to ensure that the best players play in their competitions. Consequently, the AFL stuck a deal with the APS. That's the the, Australian private sort of stinky schools, the really big ones. Um, They're called Australian public schools, but they're not public schools, they're just independent schools, they're not Catholic schools or anything like that, Um, to manage the school and club commitments. Tellingly, the agreed pecking order is one, AFL National Under-18 Championships, two, school football, and three, NAB League games. Ogilvy said the pathway to the AFL might become more difficult for working-class kids, inverted commas, than when he was a young footballer from Melbourne's northern suburbs who played for Collingwood Under-19s, that's how he got there, in part because of the demands on parents. I reckon it's making it a little bit harder, he says. Ogilvy's observation is backed by a 2019 study of 6,492 students by the University of Newcastle academics who found that students in a higher socioeconomic background were more likely to cover a career in sports than those of a lower SES. And those who attended advantage schools consequently were also more likely to seek a sports career. Now, this is interesting. This is, topsy, this is upside down from what I knew when I was a kid. Indigenous kids differed. Um, lower participation rates for Indigenous kids, but more likely to seek a sports career. So it's the opposite for Indigenous kids. That said, special players carve their path. Or, as I would say, exceptions prove the rule, and so therefore everything's all right. That's the mantra of education in Australia. You find one example of something that's going right. So there you go, no problems, bye. The game's most fated player, Dustin Martin, dropped out of school in Year 9, having grown up in a challenging circumstances as the son of a bikie who's, whom the Australian government has since deported back to New Zealand, 
or as a legion of disadvantaged Indigenous players. Another change in the AFL landscape, the mean wage for a male player in 2018, was $362,409, which is interesting, slightly more than a Cabinet Minister in the Australian Government. Schools want captains of AFL teams, not just captains of industry. See, that's interesting, the the median wage. I mean, I assume there's a lot of very rich footballers out there, but I didn't know there were... That was the median wage. Fascinating. Well, the Rand Cinder running tracks encircles the oval at Collingwood Football Club's Holden Centre headquarters at the edge of Melbourne's sports precinct, where runners in black sleeves and shirts are competing a two-kilometre time trial for an AFL draft combine. Roll, a sturdy 187-centimetre redhead, does the time trial in 6 minutes 17, about the same time as his taller, lean and lightly freckled 191-centimetre mate Anderson in a separate race. Eight weeks earlier, they co-captained Carey to a victory over Caulfield, securing their school's second ever premiership. One of the best days of my life, I reckon, recalled Raoul. Carey was a poor football school when they arrived, the boys explained. The perception of Carey as a football school was just nowhere. Like Carey fairies and all that stuff, says Anderson. To actually take them to a premiership was like so satisfying. Mm-hmm. Recruited from seven years on scholarships, football scholarships from primary schools in Mont Albert and Hawthorne, Roland Anderson raised their performance profile and spirits of a flailing school team. Um, and now they're drafted to the Gold Coast <laughs> as a pair. Um, I don't think they'll be getting the, the median wage yet, but they will be pretty soon. The school's investment in the pair of those pair of kids is vindicated. On Wednesday evening, Kerry Gamma will be promoted repeatedly in the media as the school that topped the draft class. Money well spent on scholarships. Yeah, um, I think that's just a bit sad. I mean, we're sitting here defending government schools and we know who's attacking them, you know, various forms of private schools and private initiatives and all that sort of stuff. But then you take something like footy and you go, oh, no, yeah, you know, they've, they've infected that too. There's, there's a marketplace out there. And footy, football's not football. Football's one, one of the five major prongs of Kerry Grammer's marketing strategy. And that, as they say, is that. Back a little bit more. I'm sorry to say it's not good news because I'm going to talk about the PISA studies after the break. Um, but let's have a break anyway. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Friends, food and rebellious feminism. Keen to meet like-minded feminists passionate about overhauling the system? Want to revel in the global uprisings led by women? Celebrate highlights of 2019 with Radical Women swap ideas of what still needs to be done. Find out Radical Women's plans for early 2020 and get involved. Sunday, December the 8th, 5pm at the Solidarity Salon, 580 Sydney Road, Brunswick. All genders welcome. Phone 03 9388 0062 for more information. Radical Women is a 3CR supporter. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. 
Brunswick Secondary State College. schools are great. Harkaway Primary great School. Sunshine schools. North Primary They're School. really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got vis- physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually, an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's who, that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the when weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a, a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words that is actually... So, so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long don't necessarily start off with a Positive great Positive relationships with each other, with the teachers and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast and so there's, there's food on... If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 94198377. State schools are great schools. Great state schools. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Um, often we talk about corruption in education, often we talk about unfairness in education, often we talk about aspiring to a gold standard and being prevented to because various forces combine to basically bastardise and stuff over the education system of the public, of us Australians, um, while hiving off a great deal of money to, to private school systems, which shows no particular benefit. Um, as it was described quite quite succinctly in the press release uh, that Jean put together and, and Dale so kindly shared with us. But every now and then you just get to the hard tax. Now the PISA education study, which is a study of, well, I don't know, thousands of kids around the world, from all the participating countries, ranks countries against each other in terms of the effectiveness of their education system. And they do a series of tests with 15-year-olds, you know, in between human beings, the middle school years. They're not kids. They're not adults, but they're about to be. And what's happened um, just recently is the results have come out. And um, I don't know. It's, it's really sad. Um, I'm sorry. It's just sad because a global study of more than half a million 15-year-olds has found that Australian students now lag for three, point, or three and a half years behind the best educated kids in the world and the best educated kids in the world the educated kids in the world these days are the Chinese kids uh, from Hong Kong, from Shanghai from various places, from Macau and offshore places um, three and a half years behind kids in China in their mathematics performance um, there's also reading and there's science as well which they, which they investigate and their performance in all three major subjects of Australian students is in long term decline we are now no longer amongst the best countries in the world. We used to be. We used to be a generation ago. Now, that 2018 Programme for International Student Assessment, which is commonly called the PISA Report, uh, was just published this week, just gone by, and I've been through it. I found Australian students sat just slightly above the average, slightly above the median for all kids around the world. We're not special anymore. We're not elite We're certainly not punching above our weight. We're punching well below it. Um, As well as lagging but well behind Chinese students in maths, the study also found that Australian students have fallen more than a year behind their Singapore counterparts in the last four years. Yeah, the Pisanal National Project Manager in Australia is Sue Thompson, and she described the results as a wake-up call. Yeah, she did the same thing four years ago, and four years ago, and four years ago. She says, we're not giving them skills that they need in maths or reading or science. We're not giving them the same level of skills as they are in other countries. This is a concern, particularly in a global economy, where our kids will compete with kids from all over the world. Across Australia, results were varied. Um, in reading maths and science, students in South Australia, Tasmania, and the Northern Territory fell below the OECD average for the first time. So Tasmania, Northern Territory, and South Australia, yep, you're 
Now, not just on the average for the, for the world, you're, you're below it. New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland met the average. Uh, Canberra um, are beating the average. So, yeah, if you live in Canberra, go, yeah, well done, I suppose. But the relative trend in maths and English and, and science um, has just fallen. Fallen since 2000. It's fallen by around about, it's fallen by around about, I don't know, 30%. In a generation. In a generation. Because, of course, you see, you can't just say, oh, just, just go and test all the lovely private school kids, kids with their scholarships. No, you can't do that. You've got to test everyone. And when it comes to testing everyone, we realise that we have this ridiculous, ridiculous system. Um, there are solutions to this, and I'll be going through those later, so don't get too despairing. Um, but not only are the results disheartening, there's, there's a particular thing I, I want to highlight and what I want to highlight is I'm really interested in those countries around the world that have, have not made the mistake that we have. I want to know what school, what countries around the world are doing it better than us. Well, there's China. There's Beijing, China. Shanghai. Zhaoxing. There's Singapore. There's Macau, China. And there's China, Hong Kong. They're having rights. Well, because they're well educated, I suppose. They know what they don't like, the Chinese Taipei. Those are now, in terms of the world, the best places to get an education. So let's just think, should we be more like the Chinese? Is that going to work in an Australian context? Um, I would suggest that I don't want to live in a world where our children, um, where education is the sole purpose and passing tests is the sole purpose in their life, but that's what's happened in those situations. Um, but also Japan, Korea are also above us in terms of their education systems. And I really like Japanese and Korean people, so I can't get all sort of pseudo behind the hand, you know, I'm not racist, but I don't want my child sort of doing homework from 5 o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night. You know, that sort of image that we have. Um, the first non-Asian country, because now that's, you have to say that, because that's what, that's what the results are there, because the whole thing's just separated out. Um, is Estonia, followed by the Netherlands, followed by Poland, Switzerland, Canada, Denmark, Slovenia, Belgium, Finland, Sweden, United Kingdom, Norway, Germany, Ireland, Czech Republic, Austria, Latvia, France, Iceland, New Zealand, Portugal. And only after you got through all those do you get to Australia, which is there sitting right on the mean. Okay, and, of course, there are countries that do less well than us. All those, you know, I mean, let's go to Slovenia. We'll get a oh, four times better education, according to these numbers. Um, we'll go to Norway, small country, not many people. I don't think they'll fit us all in, truth to tell. Um, Czech Republic, same story. Um, yeah, those are, all the, those are all the countries that do better than we do, which I think is fascinating. Now, on John Menager's Pearls and Irritations, um, where we often come to talk about education policy, there's quite an interesting article being written by Chris Bonner about this which I would like to just very briefly share with you
Yeah, and this, I said, I'd like to share what Chris Bonner has to say about this because I think it's really quite interesting. I won't tell you everything he said because some of it's a bit rude because he's a bit annoyed. Um, look, Australian Education Minister Dan Tan has come and said, this is absolutely terrible. What we have to do is we have to get back to basics and, and uncrowd our curriculum and not go around talking about, you know, not go around talking and having subjects like arts and music and wastes of time. We have to get back to basics and that way we'll... Um, that way we'll solve the problem. <laughs> but the basic problem with this whole thing is that the test, the PISA test, in science and maths and English, are all about the ability to use those skills to solve problems. It's not about the basic repetition of mathematics problems. It's not about the, the understanding of science for its own sake. It's about applying science and applying mathematics and applying your literacy skills to problem solving. Getting back to the basis is not going to solve that problem. So, you're, you know, if you want to study for a test on that, you don't sit there and, and improve your spelling. Mm. <laughs> you don't waste your time doing that. In fact, it's futile as far as he's concerning because the whole idea is, you know, we, we should put enduring solutions in to emerging problems. Um, it, we haven't even, as a country, implemented the 2008 Melbourne Declaration on Improving Education. So 11 years ago, it's just still, still sitting there. Look, the AEU president, Petrina, uh, Karina Haythorpe, wants extra teaching resources to solve the problem, a solution in the category of, well, yeah, but that's not actually going to solve the problem. Labor's Tanya Plibersek, well, she's got, she says, a huge wake-up call for the Liberals who have seen score tests plummet under their watch. It's nothing to do with us. And um, he says, no, this falls into the fudge category. Uh, they've actually fallen on everyone's watch. You know, we've had a few Labor governments since the turn of the century. The priorities of the Rudd and Gillard governments didn't help um, because Rudd and Gillard said, hurrah, we're going to beat Shanghai and PISA tests by 2020. No, we're just in the ruck. We're in that big bulge, which is at the median of all countries, and Shanghai's up at the top. No. Uh, so unless something happens really dramatically in our education system in the next three weeks because that's when 2020 arrives. So how do you solve the problem? Well, he says it's really simple. Massive rethink. Um, higher SES students are crowding into high SES schools, and the reverse is happening for low SES schools. Our rich and poor are dividing. Indigenous students are highly represented in schools with the least capacity to teach Indigenous kids. Most regional schools in Australia have seen an increasing concentration of the most disadvantaged students. Government schools, the ones that enrol the majority of students, have increasingly proportion of the most disadvantaged kids. The distribution of higher education, high achieving year 12 students has changed, favouring high SES schools and non-government schools and urban schools. Research um, using both MySchool and ABS data suggests other widening gaps of both basis of student ability and student cultural background being very closely linked. If you don't decouple, if you don't rip apart the connection between a child's postcode and their math score, because they are correlated in Australia, it's just a fact. If you don't rip that to shreds, you're not going to solve any problems. You never will. You can talk about skill sets and blaming the other side and more resources. Yeah, great. If you don't sort that problem out, you don't sort anything out. But one of those little things I, I, I told you about, about kids, kids, in, kids around the world are doing much better than we're doing here in Australia. One of them was Estonia, and that's popped up out of nowhere. I want to know why, and I want to share, because I found out. Okay? So rather than have a great state school today, we're going to have a great state school system in Estonia. Let me share it with you. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. The state, state schools. schools school are of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Let's talk about Estonia. Something cheery to end the program. Look, it outperforms all other major European economies and countries, including the UK, in um, education tests. The, these PISA tests measure the ability of a 15-year-old to apply their skills and knowledge to real-life problem-solving in reading, maths and science. Hence, Dan Tan, mate, sort yourself out with your three-hour rubbish. <laughs> um, 
The OECD has run tests since 2000, and most middle and higher income countries take part. The latest results were published, as I say, just this week. In PISA results, um, in the PISA results published in 2016, Estonia came third in science, while the UK was ranked 15th, and Australia was ranked much lower than that. In reading, Estonia was ranked sixth, far above the UK's 22nd place, and again, far above Australia. The reason I'm talking about the UK is I'm quoting actually from an article from the BBC. BBC. Um, there is some research on this, and I'm sharing it with you. Do you know what they did? And I think this is fascinating. Estonia has made high-quality early years education a priority. Kids don't start school until they're seven. But they go to kindergarten from the age of three. It's drop-off time. I'll paint a picture for you. In Tallinn, I love Tallinn, um, a couple of mums both have six-year-old children in the oldest group of kindergarten. That means they'll start compulsory schooling next year at the age of seven, so parents rely on kindergartens to get them ready. It's very important because leaving learning is, uh, will be so fast. My child would need to ask teachers questions, raise hands and be brave, says one mother. The most important thing is that he's socially ready. Almost every child in Estonia comes to kindergarten from the age of three or even earlier. Parents have to make a contribution, but it's capped as a proportion of the minimum wage. So for these talent mums, this means that up to £80 a month is spent on their child in terms of their education. Um, Just keep listening. Kindergartens expect children to learn through play, directed by teachers, with more formal learning gradually, gradually introduced. Vera tells me education is important, but it's also important to do it in a way they enjoy. They set up the idea of learning. This is where Estonia begins to level up the attainment of all children by making sure as many as possible are emotionally and physically ready to learn by the age of seven. The result, according to Peter Tess, is a smaller gap between rich and poor by the time they're teenagers. Yes, equity has educational benefits. Um, the manager of that kindergarten says they don't grade children against tests when they leave. Yeah, yeah, there's no tests. They don't, don't do, do those. The children get a school readiness card describing their skills, their development, and what they need more to do. It's a world away from England where a single, or similar aged child are getting ready for their very first national tests in first grade and second grade. Pupils hit phonics tests in year one, standardised tests in reading and writing and maths in year two. This is a test, 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 test. The results for the year two tests are no longer used up for league tables, no longer used, and as from 2023, they will be optional, but they're still there. In the meantime, it's not unusual for six or seven-year-olds to be sent home with past test papers in, in the UK to practice. It happens here in Australia, you know, with NAPLAN. <laughs> Estonia's system's quite different. By the age of 15, its students are significantly outperforming students in Australia in every single subject that they do. So why also, they say, in Estonia, the universal basic education is in schools where pupils stay from the ages of 7 to 16, with some students staying on to prepare for higher education study. And she said, if you teach students in different level abilities, you'll segregate them. She said, why would we do that? Why would we segregate our children out, even within the school? If they have different abilities, that's just a waste of everyone's time. Every school, every subject here is taught in an all-ability class. Pulling students in different groups by subject or overall attainment, known as sets or streams in the UK and here in Australia as well, is very, very rare in Estonia. There is a national curriculum, but relatively few measures to hold schools to it. Um, So teachers are free to teach what they think is the most appropriate thing, which I think is absolutely fascinating. But you've been listening to the Dogs Program. You're on 3CR 855 on the day. On the dial. If you've got something to say to me or anyone here at the Dogs, give us a call, 94198377. And during business hours, because I, you know, I don't want you calling an empty, empty, darkened room during the middle of the night, during, during business hours, um, if you think of a good state school, we can put that in, or a good, a good school system, I'll put that in too. We're expanding. Um, but if you'd like to find out more about what we do, you can at um, our, our website, www.adogs.info, or indeed at the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. But from now until then, which is, of course, next week, because we have to keep the fight up, it's bye for now.